I am Michael Brent at Observe the Word, and we are interpreting Romans. Our text is Romans chapter 14, verses 13 to 23. Accept one another. You would think this would be an easy command for Christians. That is, you would think it would be easy unless you've been committed to being part of a Christian community for any length of time. Acceptance is not easy. The principle of modern acceptance or tolerance tries to come up with an easy solution. That solution is basically to declare everybody's beliefs equally valid and all behavior equally good, as long as that behavior doesn't directly harm another person. But that easy solution is really hard to pull off. No one really accepts that all beliefs are valid, and behaviors said to not harm anyone often inflict deep wounds. In any case, the modern idea of accepting all beliefs and behaviors is not an approach open to biblically-minded Christians. We believe in the importance of an accurate worldview, and we believe that good behavior brings forth fruit in life, while bad behavior brings forth pain and death. Beliefs, thoughts, words, and actions matter very much. Blanket acceptance of everything is not good for anyone. In Romans 14.1 through 15.12, Paul brings up a specific type of disagreement that affects every Christian community at some point. The disagreements here have to do with issues of conscience in regard to certain religious or spiritual practices. Paul is telling the Romans they need to figure out how to accept one another even as they continue to disagree with one another. There are times when a brother or sister in Christ feels very strongly about certain behaviors and practices so strongly that they feel it's sinful to do this or that or not to do this or that. It's a sin to drink wine or it's disrespectful to use drums in church or it's breaking the Ten Commandments if you do certain activities on Sunday or all dancing is bad or there's one Christian way to raise your children. Everybody should homeschool because the state of our public schools or nobody should homeschool because we need to participate in community. The list is long that Christians feel passionate about vaccinations, interracial marriage, birth control, proper language, modest dress, acceptable movies, modern worship. Paul says, accept. But Paul also realizes how difficult it can be to figure out what true acceptance looks like. It can't be the modern version of everything goes, but it should also not be based on forcing everyone into the same thoughts and the same behavior. So how do we practice gospel-based acceptance when we're disagreeing about issues of conscience. What are the principles for acceptance in these cases? Paul got us started in Romans 14, 1-12 with two principles, the principle of the master and the principle of faith. The principle of the master is a reminder that each person stands before his master in regard to these types of issues. And we are not that master. God is the master. We each stand before God and are accountable to him So we can allow people to be in process. We don't have to fix everyone or draw everyone into line with our own sense of values. They stand before their own master. And along with the principle of the master, Paul introduced the principle of faith, which requires each of us to take seriously the state of our own conscience. If we really believe that an act is sin, then for us to willfully participate in that act would be sin. As we continue on with Romans 14, 13 to 23, Paul will further develop this principle of faith and add a third principle, the principle of the stumbling block. Let's get into the text. 
We have a similar pattern in 13 to 23 as we did in 1 to 12. If you remember in 1 to 12, it's a ring pattern. In a ring pattern, the you begin with one idea and you end with the same idea and you develop it in the middle. So here we have the exhortation to not be a stumbling block at the beginning. That's in verses 13 to 16. Paul comes back to that exhortation in the end in verses 20 to 23. And in the middle, verses 17 to 19, Paul provides support for the exhortation. We'll take each of these in turn, exhortation, support, exhortation, and then consider a couple of challenges that come up when we try to apply Paul's principles in Christian community. Let's read Romans 14, 13 to 23. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. For if because of food your brother is hurt, you're no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Therefore do not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. It's good not to eat meat or to drink wine or do anything by which your brother stumbles. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. Paul starts in verse 12, let us not judge one another anymore. And this is the language from verses 3 and verse 10. This is how you know that you're not accepting one another. If you are judging the morality or spirituality of your brother in Christ because of his convictions over issues of conscience, then you're not accepting. What principles do we employ to help us not judge? Well, we recognize it's not our job. God is okay with these kinds of differences. Each person is in process as they try to live for God as their king. Each of us needs some freedom in our walk with God. This is always an issue inside the Christian family when you're trying to raise your kids in Christian community. Different families disagree on how to handle various issues. Some families in church are going to have one standard for the kinds of shorts or bathing suits that are appropriate for little girls. Other families are going to have a different perspective. Some families are going to go see Harry Potter together. Others are going to forbid it. And those who forbid it might go to a different set of movies off limits to the first family. Some families are going to drink wine or beer at a meal. Others are not. We learned early on that we needed to say to our kids, girls, these are the Brent rules. And there's not a right way or a wrong way to approach some of these things. You know, that family in church, they're not bad for having a different approach. We have to do what we think best for our family before God. So in our family, we follow the Brent rules. God's our master. God's their master. We're both trying to follow God. That's how the principle of the master frees us up not to judge our brothers and sisters. We could call this a passive principle. It just requires you letting others be. Here in verse 13, Paul is giving us an active principle. It requires you to exert some effort by changing your own behavior in order to help a brother out. 
This is the principle of the stumbling block. And Paul says we're not to create an obstacle that would get in our brother's way. The way here is his walk with God. Like you, your brother and sister are trying to honor God with their lives. They're doing their best to walk the path he has marked out for them. And as they move along the way, they're going to have enough challenges to deal with. Don't you be the cause of putting up an additional stumbling block or obstacle in their way. We could think back to chapter 9, verse 32, where Paul talks about Jewish people stumbling over the idea that Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus himself is a stumbling block. And that's not a stumbling block we can do anything about. It's not one we would want to change. The brother or sister in this passage has overcome Jewish resistance to Jesus as Messiah and has come to accept that they are under the new covenant of grace, they're just struggling with how to live out the gospel in light of a deep value for the practices of Mosaic Covenant. They already have some major obstacles to overcome. Don't put up additional obstacles that don't even need to be there. Let's look at how Paul develops this idea. He gives us a second point in verse 14. He says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Paul reaffirms here that we're talking about an issue of conscience, not a sin issue. Under Mosaic Covenant, it would have been wrong for a believer to ignore the food laws. But one of the new things about the New Covenant is that the ceremonial laws no longer apply. Those laws belong to the Older Covenant. So Paul can say here in reference to food, nothing is unclean in itself. Some prohibitions are symbolic for teaching purposes or for extra protection. The thing in itself is not sinful. It's not immoral to eat a mouse or a scorpion or a lobster. It might be unhealthy. It might be unwise. It's not immoral. If God specifically says, do not do it, then it's not immoral because of the thing in itself but because of the command. And this is a standard principle with raising children. If I say don't cross the street without holding my hand, and my daughter looks at me with that look like I hear you, and then she runs across the street by herself hands-free, not only has she done something unwise, but she's done something sinful. And the sin is not crossing the street without holding someone's hand. When she gets a bit older, she'll be free to cross the street on her own with no hand-holding. Handholding across streets is not a moral requirement. Obeying a clear command from your father is a moral requirement. The sin in that case is the sin of disobedience. And I want her to understand this distinction when she gets older so that she'll not go through life feeling guilty and bad every time she crosses the street without holding somebody's hand. And when she gets older, she's free from that command. And I don't want her to be go around judging people who cross the street without holding people's hands. The thing in itself is not a sin. And it's the same with the food laws. The eating is not in itself a sin. It was only a sin as long as God's command to not eat applied. Now that God has removed that command in the new covenant, we're all free to eat non-kosher food. Though some who grew up under the command may still have trouble getting over guilty feelings associated with eating formally forbidden foods. So Paul's comment that nothing is unclean reaffirms that this is not a moral issue we're talking about, but an issue of conscience. 
Paul's also reaffirming here the principle of faith. Though a thing in itself may not be sinful or immoral, if you believe it is and do it anyway, then that is sin. With all immoral acts, there are two sins. You know, there's the thing in itself, the murder or theft or adultery or whatever leads up to that, and there's the rebellion committed in doing the sin. We disobey God, sin one, and we do the sinful thing, sin two. In this case of eating formally forbidden foods, the thing in self turns out to be not immoral. It's not a sin. Despite what the believer thinks, his act is not sinful. There is potentially, however, still a sin if you think your behavior goes against the will of God and you do it anyway, then you're committing the sin of rebellion or disobedience. This is how Paul can say that a thing might be unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. Paul adds another point in verse 15, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. If we hurt a brother or sister over an issue of conscience, then we're not acting in a loving way to that brother or sister. And Paul uses strong language. He says, do not destroy with food him for whom Christ died. How is our freedom in regard to a certain issue destructive? A friend once told me that in high school, he saw a case of beer in his youth leader's room. After seeing that, it caused him to withdraw from discipleship and threw him off his path with Christ for some time. Later, he found out that what he saw were bottles of root beer. It was just soda, not, it's not alcoholic. So in this case, I have to admit that there's just some things out of our control that we create obstacles with good intentions and without knowing what other people are thinking. The youth leader was not being unloving by hoarding root beer. Still, the example reminds us that people are in process and these issues of conscience have potential to create serious internal struggle. I think Paul has more in mind the idea of us urging one another to a freedom that we don't yet feel comfortable with. If you're at a church or movement event and there's dancing going on, and how hard should you work to get people out on the dance floor? Generally, it's probably okay. You know, they're probably not dancing because they're introverted. They just need some encouragement and you can get them out there. But if someone lets you know that they really don't feel comfortable dancing, you should probably let it go. You don't want to talk someone into doing something that they feel is sinful for them to do. I had another friend for whom this was a real issue. He had qualified to go to the Olympics for the exhibition sport of competitive dance. He hurt his back and he wasn't allowed to go. And then he came to Christ. And after coming to Christ, he made a decision not to ever go again to a dance club and not to dance at all. For him, the environment of dance brought up a range of sinful memories and desires associated with the culture of dance. To pressure him to dance would be putting a temptation, a stumbling block in his path. Even more similar to Paul's context, if someone grew up in church where they're taught that dancing is sin or drinking is sin, and you pressure them strongly to join in, you might be pressuring them to join in doing something that they still believe is sin. If you don't know, there's not much you can do about it, but if you are aware that this is something they struggle with, then back off for the moment. You can have a gospel conversation later to explore the issue, but in the moment is not the time to pressure someone to behave in a way they might not be comfortable with. 
You might disagree with their rationale, but you can respect as good their desire to honor God in their behavior. Love is a higher goal than personal freedom of behavior. Sometimes we express love by curbing our freedoms so as not to cause others to stumble. So in the American South, Christian leaders may make the decision never to have alcohol in their home because they don't want to create confusion or a stumbling block for other Christians who might come in their home and see the alcohol and have wrong ideas or have their own temptations. Sometimes the right action of love involves not suppressing freedom, but expressing freedom. So in Croatian Protestant culture, a number of churches make a distinction between drinking a beer or a glass of wine and getting drunk on beer or wine. The first is okay, just to drink a glass. The second's not, to get drunk. I mentioned in our last lesson a non-Christian student who brought a small keg of beer to a joint viewing of a World Cup soccer match with our college movement and our church members. And an elder from the church walked into the room. What do you think he did? Well, he walked over to the keg and poured himself a cup of beer. That's what he did. And not only was there no drunkenness that night, there was also no unnecessary communication of judgment. That action by the elder did not result in us bringing beer to church events. You know, It didn't change the way we behaved. It did allow for the acceptance of a college student who didn't exactly understand what kind of social event he was coming to, but had acted with good faith, with generous and hospitable motives. In verse 16, Paul exhorts us to not let what is for you a good thing be spoken of as evil. That requires considering the needs, the motives, the understandings, how the other person feels, and being able to express or curb your own freedom out of love for them. So you may feel strongly about your view about a particular issue of conscience. Paul challenges here to think more deeply. There's a more important good to be concerned about. And we see what he means in verses 17 to 19, the center of the passage. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. For he who in this way serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. Paul's not used a lot of kingdom language in Romans, but the concept of the kingdom is basic to his biblical worldview. Paul did point out in chapter 1, verse 3, that Jesus is the expected son of David, the Jewish king, the Messiah. And in chapter 5, Paul compared Jesus to Adam, declaring that through Adam, sin reigned in death, and through Jesus, grace reigns in life. There are two different realms or kingdoms, one of Adam, sin, and death, and the other of Jesus, obedience, and life. Jesus will one day establish his right reign on a new earth. So we pray, thy kingdom come. For now he reigns from heaven, so we pray, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. The reality of the kingdom of God on earth shows up as men and women live according to God's will. They've submitted willingly to his reign. The kingdom is expressed by transformed people who live out of a new heart in the power of the Holy Spirit. Paul describes this transformational new covenant living here as righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. 
And using the language of 12.1, he says, the one who serves Christ in this way is acceptable to God. You know, we want to present ourselves to God in a way that's pleasing and acceptable, a, a real offering of worship. So the gospel of Jesus Christ has freed us from a whole range of ceremonial or religious practices that people attach to true spirituality. But the expression of that freedom is not the goal of true spirituality. Love is the goal. Freedom's not the main thing. Living out the will of God in love is the main thing. Paul comments that not only is this kind of spirituality pleasing to God, he says it's also approved by men. I don't think he means that it is approved by all men at all time, but that authentically loving one another in growing maturity, is our witness to the world of the reality of Jesus Christ in our lives. People will not be impressed by our ritual habits of religion. They will notice a community that practices genuine love and acceptance. Jesus was quite serious when he said, By this all men will know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. The kingdom of God is the good thing that we don't want people to speak badly of. We recognize that people are in process, and rather than flaunting our freedom, which may lead to dissension or to spiritual disillusionment, instead we pursue the things which make for peace and the building up of one another. We do not want this good to be destroyed simply because we held on to our right to live according to our freedom in the gospel. Moving to the last section of the passage in verses 20 to 23, Paul repeats the exhortation to not cause your brother to stumble. In fact, he repeats each of the three primary points from verses 13 to 16, and he does so in reverse order, creating a chiastic pattern. In verse 15, he said, Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. Here in verse 20, he says the same thing. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. The point of the kingdom is to build one another up in spiritual maturity, not tear one another down over disagreements about issues of conscience. In verse 14, Paul made clear that he's indeed talking about an issue of conscience and not a moral issue by stating, nothing is unclean in itself. He repeats that point in the second half of verse 20, all things indeed are clean, but they're evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Finally, just as Paul warned us against putting up an obstacle or stumbling block in verse 13, He repeats the same in verse 21. It is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. That's the stumbling block principle. We do not want to entice another believer to go against his or her conscience. Nor do we want to make our freedom such an issue that it turns another person away from the more important reality of their spiritual relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul ends the passage with a clear statement of the principle of faith. The faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves, but he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith, and whatever is not from faith is sin. You stand before God as your master. Whenever you encounter a choice or decision or opportunity and you ask, what's the wise thing for me to do in this situation? How do I honor God in this? You are accountable to your own conscience. To know whether or not I can do something with faith, 
I think about whether or not I feel good about asking Jesus to join with me in whatever I'm doing. If I'm comfortable eating this, or drinking this, or doing this, or watching this with Jesus, that shows me that I believe it's not a sin. Whether I'm right or wrong, at least according to my conscience, if I can freely ask Jesus to join me and I'm okay with that, then I don't believe it's a sin. If I'm uncomfortable doing it with Jesus, if I don't think I could watch this or eat this or drink that with Jesus, that shows me what I think about the watching or the eating or drinking. I think there's something wrong with it. And so I can't do it by faith. For me to do that would be sin because I don't think that Jesus really wants me to do it. Paul's given us the exhortation to accept one another when we disagree about issues of conscience. And he's given us these three principles, great principles to apply. The principle of the master, which frees us up to let people stand before God. The principle of faith, which challenges us to consider our own conscience and to act accordingly. And the principle of the stumbling block which exhorts us not to become part of the problem, but to look at something deeper, to be willing to limit our own freedom out of love for somebody else. And as we seek to apply these principles, we're going to encounter some further challenges. And I'm going to mention just three of those. These are important in thinking this out and applying this. And the first is, when does an issue of conscience become an issue of sin? We know that chapter 14 is not intended by Paul to encourage the acceptance of sin in the Christian community. And Paul began way back in chapter 1 of Romans describing fallen human nature. He gave us several examples of sin there, if you want to go back and review. And he says this displays a darkened heart and a corrupt mind. This is a turning away from God. It's becoming less than human. Then in chapter 6, Paul called us to stop offering the members of our body to unrighteousness and instead to offer ourselves to God. And as recent as the previous chapter, we have Paul calling us to turn our backs on murder or theft or adultery or drunkenness and to turn ourselves towards a life of love. This passage can't be encouraging acceptance of sin in gospel community. That would run contrary to the presentation of the gospel of grace Paul has been giving us. Believers do not see grace as permission to sin, but freedom from sin. We pursue life and growth in Christ together. So here in chapter 14, we have issues that are not sinful, such as whether or not to eat non-kosher food. A problem that arises is the gray area between clear issues of conscience and clear issues of sin. So we have questions about Sabbath-keeping and drinking, and modesty, and entertainment. How do we recognize when we've moved from something that's just an issue of conscience into something that really is a sin issue? How do we recognize, for example, when we should leave the watching of certain movies up to each person to determine before God, and when we should communicate a moral stance in regard to certain kinds of material? This is one of the challenges of applying this passage. Now, I can imagine Paul saying that we're free to watch movies. I think he would have loved the Jesus film. I cannot imagine at all, however, the Apostle Paul watching an uncut episode of the Game of Thrones. At some point, we've moved from an issue of conscience to pornography. 
And pornography is not okay for Christians, and we need to speak out against it. The answer is not to develop a system of laws that's going to keep us safe, so we'll just ban all movies and then we won't have to worry about it. That's a legalistic answer. In dealing with issues of conscience, we need to allow individuals and families to make their own decisions, and we acknowledge that they must follow the principle of faith and God is their master. On the other hand, when we move from issues of conscience through the gray area to sin, we also need to call sin, sin. And the ongoing challenge for us in Christian community has to do with handling the gray between, that area that's in between a clear issue of conscience and a clear issue of sin. Here's a second challenge. At what point do we say the weak are exerting too much influence on the community? This is Paul's language. The weak in faith are those who do not yet understand the freedom they have from certain practices. The stumbling block principle can be taken too far. Paul calls the strong in faith to hold off acting on their liberty in the gospel so as not to cause others to stumble. And we could imagine practicing this principle by choosing not to order wine or beer when out with other Christians because someone may see drinking alcohol as a sin. And you reason, why hurt our opportunity to have good Christian fellowship if it only means I need to order water? It's really no big deal. This is a valid application of the stumbling block principle. If, however, a group in church insists that all wine is evil and that Jesus never really drank wine and it's never acceptable for any Christian to drink wine, and furthermore, this should be the teaching of the church, then that individual or group is beginning to exert an undue influence on the holy community. We set aside our liberty out of love, but we do not change the biblical teaching of liberty in order to be at peace with those who have not yet come to a certain understanding of biblical truth. Paul did use the term strong and weak, which shows us that he had a view regarding whose understanding of the gospel was correct. Furthermore, Paul taught what he understood to be the correct position that we are indeed free from Mosaic ceremony. Those who felt they must still follow those laws did so out of an incomplete understanding of the gospel. And though Paul himself might choose to eat kosher food when in fellowship with these Christians, he was not going to let their failure to grasp the implications of the gospel change his own teaching of the gospel. Paul wants them to live in faith according to the current state of their conscience, but he also wants them to grow into maturity. He wants them to be transformed and to come to a more full, a stronger understanding of their freedom in Christ. Healthy gospel community should resist the imposition of a weak view of the gospel onto the whole. This is especially the responsibility of the community's leadership. That brings us to the third challenge. We need spiritually mature leadership. Both of these challenges highlight that need. We need spiritually mature leaders who are continuing to grow in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And based on the tone of chapter 14, I believe Rome had that kind of leadership. I believe Paul had confidence in Priscilla and Aquila and the others he names in chapter 16. He had personally discipled Priscilla and Aquila in gospel ministry. They worked with him. They sat under his teaching. Now they're back in Rome. I doubt Paul would have written this chapter in this way if he didn't trust the leaders in Rome to apply these principles in community. And I'll admit this is not something I can prove. It's simply something I'm assuming 
It seems to me that Paul trusts the Roman leadership to understand the freedom of the gospel, while also trusting them to understand when to set aside that freedom for the sake of love and building others up. We need leaders who can recognize when we've passed from an issue of conscience to a sin issue, and who know how to communicate about the gray area in between. And we need leaders who are willing to subjugate their own liberty for the sake of others, and yet do not subjugate the glorious message of the gospel out of pressure from those who are still struggling to understand the gospel. We need these kind of leaders, so pray for your leaders. They are also in process. They are also in need of your acceptance. One of the best ways you can support your leaders in the building up of your community is to put into practice yourself these three principles of acceptance. That you entrust each one of your brothers and sisters in Christ to his own master without judgment. That you try hard not to create a stumbling block for anyone else. That you're willing to hold back your liberty out of love. And that you resolve to do nothing except that which you can do by faith in Jesus Christ. If you would like the text of this lesson with some resource questions, or if you'd like to see overview charts that go along with our study of Romans, then check out the resource page at observetheword.com.